This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Yelena Sofronievich. The rise of online shopping has also led to the rise of the return. In the last year, 51% of British shoppers sent back items they purchased online. But these goods don't always end up back on the shelves, digital or otherwise. As the cost of clothing plummets, it can be cheaper for retailers to recycle or bin returned goods than put them back on sale. So what really happens to your online shopping returns? And is fast fashion a hidden environmental threat? To discuss all of this, I'm delighted to be joined by two special guests. Dana Thomas is the European Sustainability Editor at British Vogue, host of The Green Dream with Dana Thomas and author of Fashionopolis. Hello, Dana. Hello. Lovely to be on the show. And Dr. Mark Sumner, lecturer in sustainable fashion at the University of Leeds. Hello, Mark. Hello. Firstly, then, let's break this down. Mark, can you tell me what are the environmental, economic and cultural costs of online shopping and returns? Where are the most costs accrued across the chain? We can, we can look at the, the, the impact uh, from an environmental and social point of view across that life cycle. And the biggest hotspots, ir- irrespective of whether it's online or, or bricks and mortar, will always be the materials that are used to make the garment, some of the processes, uh, in particular the dyeing and finishing of, of the fabrics that are used to make the garment. And interestingly, it's also about the consumer themselves in terms of what they're doing in terms of wearing and washing the garment. Um, so those are the, the two areas of biggest hotspots. But of course, in the middle of all of that, we've got that distribution aspect. And what's really interesting about looking at the distribution of these clothes is that shipping garments across the world is such a small component of the overall footprint for the garments that we tend to ignore that completely. That's not important. But when we start thinking about online shopping and that delivery from warehouse to individuals' homes, we then start to see that the carbon footprint starts to crank up. And then when we start thinking about the returns, the return logistics, as well as all of the ancillary processes that brands and retailers have to go through to process those returns, we then start to see carbon footprint increase greater use of plastics in terms of packaging. We also see potential increase in terms of things like cleaning the garments and repairing those garments. So we do start to see that that particular area start to grow in importance, particularly if we see this trend growing even more of people buying five, six, seven garments and then returning the vast majority of those, having only maybe not even worn them, but maybe worn them worse than they're returning them. Yes, Dana, 10% of people use online shopping as a try-on service, buying different sizes and colours and then sending them back, as Mark alluded to. Of course, this effectively doubles the transport emissions when you think about it, especially by road. But how new is this problem? I'm not so sure it's new, but it's certainly growing and it grew exponentially during COVID because we were all stuck at home. 
And so what were we doing? Surfing the net, looking for something nice to wear, even if we weren't going out anywhere and, and having things shipped to our house because we weren't getting out to go out and try things on. So I think it's become now part of the, the system, a bit like when you go into a store and you go into the into the dressing room with a stack full of clothes and then you wind up taking one or two or maybe none and the rest sit on the rack and that's, I mean, how many times have you gone into the dressing room and you see the racks full of all the rejects? So we already had that built into our in our shopping behavior and then when we got stuck at home for two years, then it really became, it shifted to our homes. Mm, and there's a lot of talk about fast fashion, especially because the British TV show Love Island has just concluded that range of fast fashion sponsorship instead opting for eBay. Firstly, can you define fast fashion and can you tell me whether you think it's caused or exacerbated by the rise in availability of online shopping? Well, fast fashion is exactly what it sounds like. It's sort of the fashion equivalent to fast food. We make it fast, we buy it fast, we consume it fast, we tire of it fast, and we're hungry for more like within hours of of having it. So you know, lightning speed, mass amounts. It's a business model based wholly on moving big amounts of volume, massive amounts of volume. And these companies do $20, $30 billion a year in sales. Enormous. I think Shein, the largest one now, it's only a couple years old and it's already the largest, was just a, just evaluated at $100 billion a year. Um, that's not their revenue, but that's what their potential revenue is because it's so, you know, it's just about volume, volume, volume. So the the impact of this is, you know, enormous. And how it has it exacerbated with online shopping? Yes, of course, everything has because it's even easier. Sure, there's a Zara and H&M probably within a 10-minute walk of your home if you live in a city because they are just as ubiquitous as McDonald's and Burger King. But if you can just click on the website and look at the stuff and then have it shipped to your house, even better. And that's what Shein does. Shein is all online, like Boohoo. Boohoo. There's a whole, a whole generation of fast fashion companies now that are strictly online. And they just, even Amazon now, it's the, Amazon is officially the world's largest fashion retailer. But Boohoo.com, I mean, that's the name of the company. It's Boohoo.com. It's an online fast fashion retailer. And these folks are making so much money because they're not having to invest at all in bricks and mortar, as we say, into stores, into building and staffing stores and putting product in and taking product out and moving it around and redecorating and doing the windows. They don't have any of those costs. They just put it online and ship it and bring it back. Now, in the US, 15 million metric tons of CO2 are emitted from the transport of returns every year, never mind sending them out. And I recently spoke to Ruth Michelson for an episode of The Bunker Daily, where we talked about outsourcing waste after thousands of tons of Western clothing were found to have been illegally dumped and burned in South America. Mark, can you tell me what happens to clothes when they are returned then? Are they always destroyed? Are they always put back on the shelves? I, I, I think this is one of the, the, the great myths that exist around uh, retail and, and the fashion industry, particularly in the UK. Having spent a lot of time uh, working with brands and, and seeing these returns, for most organisations, excluding luxury, I would say, for most brands and retailers, the very worst thing that you can do in terms of your profitability, irrespective of your view on sustainability, the very worst thing that you can do is, is throw these garments away. You, they, they've been bought, they've been purchased, 
from the supply chain and brands are trying to maximize their profit. So the idea that brands are taking these garments back from customers and just throwing them away is, 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 is just something I've never seen in most brands and retailers. And they work really, really hard when they get these garments back to try and get them refurbished. That's the technical term they use to actually get them back out on the shop floor or get them back into a position where they can be sold online again. And even if they can't be sold online again, they are then looking at saying, well, if I can't sell them through my own outlet, I'm going to sell them through somewhere else. So, for example, there was a a very large UK online retailer. I visited their warehouse and they have garments that are returned to them that are in a terrible condition. Uh, a wedding dress uh, is the classic example that I saw. Physically saw this. It had fake tan. It had grass stains. It had food stains, and it was returned. And what that brand actually was trying to do is to say, "How do I maximise the longevity of this garment? I want to resell it. I want to get it out there because otherwise, I will have no profit at all." So there's a lot of work done with these brands. As I say, whether it's about sustainability or not, the, the key thing for them is they're trying to drive that profitability. Now, excluded from that, I would argue luxury brands do stand apart from that. And there have been numerous examples of luxury brands who will try and retain their exclusivity by burning stock, by throwing that stock mm-hmm. away, by ensuring no one can use those returns because... They want things to be exclusive. And there's a real moral and ethical challenge associated with that, as well as that sort of environmental impact. So I I would argue this idea that thousands of products get thrown away by these brands is is a myth, particularly, as I say, here in the UK. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting because there's there's different... um solutions that brands still do even after they've been called out on it like Burberry was called out for burning and destroying their their leftovers they put it in their annual report I, I wrote about this in my first book deluxe how luxury lost its luster and how Chanel told me yes we burn leftover goods and <laughs> then they stopped talking about that but they still do I've been told like Saks Fifth Avenue in Bal Harbor Florida just at the end of the day if their clothes that are left over or have been returned or whatever they just like take it out into the dumpster I've been hearing about stores that are now just doing this independently. They don't send it off to an official place. They just do it on the sly behind the store. But then there's also stories like Al Jazeera broke last year, the Atacama Desert, where 39,000 tons of unsold fast fashion is shipped to this desert in Chile every year and dumped. There are dunes and dunes of clothes just baking in the sun. And 16, you know, 66 or 67%, two-thirds of all clothes today are made of polyester, which never biodegrades. So these clothes are just sitting in this desert, this once pristine desert, baking for eternity. When you Google this, the Atacama Desert in Chile and fast fashion, you will see these pictures and you will be appalled. It's one of the most heinous things I've ever seen in my life. So they do quietly or try to be quietly get rid of the clothes that don't sell. I've also been to outlets like the wedding dress story, hilarious, where I've seen really ragged clothes with buttons missing and hems torn out and stains on them. And they're trying to unload and the, and they've been, you know, they pin the price tag back on and it has like five different scratch through prices. And it's down to 1999 when it started at like $1,200 just to, so they don't 
you know, throw it away, that they make even 20 bucks on it is better than no money. And it's embarrassing for the brands. Those are luxury brands where I've seen this. It's embarrassing for them because it's just showing that they have so little regard for their product. That's why now they don't do that as much and they just burn it on the sly. I think that's really fascinating because the predominant discourse around fast fashion and cheaper brands are that they are somehow necessarily less sustainable. But Mark, you did some very surprising research that found an inverse relationship between price and durability with respect to denim and jeans that meant that cheap fast fashion might actually be more sustainable than some designer clothing. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, and we, we again, it's one of those one of those existing myths that people in, in, within the, the sort of fashion will talk about, and there's very little evidence to back up some of these myths. So, for example, I've already mentioned, you know, shipping of garments around the world, the carbon footprint of that is so small, we don't need to even consider it in comparison to other things, uh, other aspects of carbon footprint. So, yeah, with with the durability of garments. What we found in terms of our research, and we, and we tested denim jeans that costed as little as £14 to uh, garments that cost up to £145, so a tenfold difference. And what we found with that research and what we were looking at was testing the garments in terms of the, the, the things that would cause a customer to be dissatisfied or to, to um, throw the garment away or, or even return it back to the store. And what we found with that research, doing a whole range of tests across 25 different products, is that the cheapest garment at £14 for a pair of denim jeans lasted twice as long as the most expensive designer denim product at £145. And we found that a remarkable result in many ways. Well, the first one is obviously how different the, the, the performance of these garments were. But if we're now thinking about the cost of living now uh, and the environment that we're in at the moment, it's this, this idea that you would have to buy for that designer brand, you'd have to spend nearly £300 on their denim product to get the same performance as a garment that costs £14. And this, of course, creates all sorts of issues for consumers in terms of trying to understand what does price actually mean for garments? Mm -hmm. Because there is no evidence to say that something that is more expensive is actually going to last longer. And the other thing I'd add as well is just because something is more expensive does not mean it's actually more sustainable. A lot of the yeah. um, online brands that have been mentioned today are doing some really interesting stuff around sustainability, far more than some of the luxury brands. The luxury brands just sort of sit back and think they don't need to worry about these things because the focus is on fast fashion. So there's a really interesting mythology out there around what fast fashion is, what it does, and some of those quality issues that, that people talk about. Now, Dana, you mentioned Chinese fast fashion giant Sheen earlier, which is the third most valuable startup in the world after Elon Musk's SpaceX and ByteDance, who are the owners of TikTok. They recently reported a higher market value than H&M and Zara combined. But does the low retail cost of their clothing incorporate these high environmental costs that Mark's talking about? And if so, who bears the brunt of those costs? Well, we all bear the brunt of these costs, whether it's Shein or anybody else, because it's damaging the planet and it's making and it's damaging humanity. You know, when we mm -hmm. buy cheap clothes, we're actually contributing to our own poverty because we, you know, I hear all the time consumers saying, I can't afford to buy 
more expensive clothes. But in fact, we can. You know, a generation ago, back when I was a teenager and in my 20s shopping, we paid five times more for clothes than we do today. And yet we buy five times more clothes. So we've been conditioned to think that these cheap prices are the prices we should be paying for clothes when they're not. And the reason that we're paying so little is because everybody along the supply chain is not paid a living wage. They're not paid what they're worth. Mm. So they can't afford to, to live like they should, would like to live because they have not been paid. And then we say, well, we can't afford to pay more for clothes because we're not paid what we're worth. So it's all of a piece. Consumers, mm. makers, everybody, it's all part of the system to enrich a very small handful of people. You know, six of the richest, the 50 richest people in the world own fashion companies. The only other industry that has as many billionaires in the top 50 is tech. And that's yeah. also, and it's also six. So it's, and I, now I know I sound a bit Marxist, but at the same time, you know, it's, we've had this unbridled capitalism it, during the age of globalization for 30 years, that same period when the price of clothes has gone down to, you know, less than we paid during the depression in the 1930s. And the wealth of a, of a small few has gone exponential. When I was working on my book, Fashionopolis, and I was visiting Bangladesh, the workers were paid $68 a month. One of the people, one of the companies they made clothes for was Zara. The owner of Zara was worth $68 billion. Now you don't mm -hmm. make that kind of wealth by paying everybody what they're worth. And so we're creating a a poverty class that isn't just the workers, it's also the consumers, and, and it's all of a piece. Now, we can't solve the environmental issues. We can't solve climate if we don't solve poverty. I was listening to a talk at the Pulitzer Center recently, and the speaker said, every story today is a climate story, and every climate story is a poverty story. It's a, it's a people story. It's, a, it's, a, mm. it's an issue about the troubles with with society and poverty. And you can't fix climate without fixing poverty. So as long as we keep devaluating everybody, every human being and creature along the supply chain, we're not going to solve the environmental crisis. And we're not going to fix our own wardrobes. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. It's interesting you point out about wealth there because we've been talking not just about environmental but cultural and economic sustainability here. And I know that Ghana in West Africa had a very strong secondhand clothing economy that was based on Western imports, but that's recently been under threat. Mark, can you tell us why? I, and I think this is this is um, a, a prime example of where we, we've let deregulation and globalisation sort of and, and unpick what is actually uh, what's working, uh, what was a well-working oiled machine. 
Because what we had going on was this idea that garments that are being returned by customers in the Western markets, Northern Europe, UK, for example, when they're actually donated to charity or put through a route that allows them to be reused, there was a well-oiled machine that was actually sorting those, allocating different garments to different, um, uh, different routes. And some of those garments were ending up in Ghana. And in Ghana, though, that, that um, second-hand clothing market was, was working really well. And it was using garments. And by the way, we just need to be clear here that the garments, the majority of the garments that were going out to Ghana and other places were good working order garments. We weren't talking about rags. They were well sorted. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the, the model in, in Ghana then took those old garments and, and they were then sold within the, their internal market. And that led to all sorts of really positive things. A, a lot of female empowerment, for example, was involved in, in that secondhand clothing market in Ghana. But what we've ended up with is, is deregulation and a lack of control about some of the, the waste that were going out to Ghana. So we saw a, an increase in the volume of garments that really were just unusable. And it meant that, and, and this is part of the problem related to what's happened in Chile as well that was mentioned earlier by Diana, is this, is this unregulated, uncontrolled disposal of waste. Yeah, back in 2019, I made a textile sustainability podcast series called India Discussion that I recorded on location in India and China, which spoke to people across the supply chain from local farmers and artisans all the way up to international design houses like Vogue India. And whilst I was making that, I really realised how disconnected we are as Western consumers from the people and processes that go into our clothing. Have you noticed something similar in your research? But I have to say that one of the challenges for the fashion industry is it tends to get pulled out more than any other industry for some of these issues. This idea of illegal trade of waste on a globalised scale affects all sorts of industries. It affects the packaging industry. It affects all sorts of waste streams. And the fashion industry is just one of those that's been affected in this way. And that's not to say that we, within the fashion industry, we should be ignoring this. But it's actually recognising that the fashion industry is part of this really massive globalised trade where governments have allowed deregulation and have allowed or or disowned responsibility for dealing with their own waste. That's a government issue that has affected fashion, but lots of other aspects of of, um, modern culture and modern society. There have been some efforts to try and redistribute money, power and responsibility across the value chain. Can you tell me about the UK's extended producer responsibility? Yeah, and the, the idea with the extended producer responsibility is to be able to say that if you're a retailer or brand selling clothes in the UK, the plan is that there would be some sort of tax or some sort of levy that be applied to that product being sold. And that would be payable by the, the retailer, so uh, the, the, the producer in this sense. The UK government is looking at this as, as a possible way to resolve the textile waste issue that affects the UK. It's based on some work that's been do- that has been done previously in France, uh, where their garment recycling w- was really poor in comparison to the UK. So the UK is relatively good in terms of getting garments recycled, but they, uh, the government's been looking to, to, to increase the amount of garments that are recycled and reused through this EPR approach. It's not instigated yet. They're still talking about it. They're still trying to work out how best to do it. But the challenge with this is potentially what we end up doing is taxing the consumer for their engagement in fashion. And that taxation may or may not 
end up being used to resolve some of the big issues that the industry is facing. There is absolutely no guarantee that any of that taxation through EPR will will go back up the supply chain to support workers. Um, so there's a real challenge in terms of EPR. It can be a very progressive way of addressing some of the environmental harm. But if the government apply a very blunt EPR system, we just end up with another taxation scheme that doesn't really benefit anyone. Now, we were talking about sustainable shopping, which is often considered much more expensive, especially if you're opting for circular economy practicing businesses like Patagonia. More recently, we've seen the likes of Dr. Martin selling their things on Depop and other social media businesses upcycling clothes. Dana, do you think that big tech and social media apps, even platforms for renting clothes, could be better? Or do you think they could be the cause and the solution of these kind of problems we're talking about with consumption? Ah, well, I think that Yes, I think they're both. I love the idea of being able to rent your wedding dress. And I think that this is a very smart market because you wear a wedding dress once, if, if you're lucky, if, you, mm. if all goes as you, as you plan. And, you know, I wore my mother's, so it's been worn twice, but that's twice in 70 years. That's not a lot. And so there are some areas, and my husband rented his morning suit for our wedding. So why can't women rent their wedding dresses? I think there are some markets where this is a very wise idea. And I just did a piece, I have a piece coming out in August in British Vogue where I talk about renting your concert, you know, all the music festival clothes, because apparently that's an enormous industry where people buy, I mean, millions are spent on these clothes that are literally worn once and thrown away. So why not rent it for 15 pounds instead of buying something new for 30 and throwing it away? There, there are areas where rental is great. But there are also, as as Rent the Runway has proved, it can be a very impactful industry on the environment. Rent the Runway in the United States is the biggest, it is the world's largest clothing rental company. And it also has the world's largest dry cleaning system. And dry cleaning, the dry cleaning system that they use is not a green system. It's still petroleum-based. So it's it's intoxic. And so, you know, and then there's all the flying the returning all the clothes back to New Jersey. You know, the United States is a big place and that's a lot of clothes crisscrossing America because you've rented it and then you have to return it. When I wrote about rental in my book, Fashionopolis, it was with a company that would send the items over by bicycle messenger. And on top of it, they were really cute guys. So you didn't mind opening your door to this guy in Lycra handing over your clothes that he just biked over, you know, a mile or two, not very far, but flying it across, you know, from from the East Coast to the West Coast and back again, that seems like it has a pretty big Im- impact. There's also a lot of talk that by renting clothes, we're encouraging people to, it's sort of like feeding the same monster that the sort of overconsumption monster that fast mm. fashion does, that you want to, if because you could rent this this week and then you can get a different look next week that you're just being, you know, you're just burning through clothes, but in a different way, as opposed to cherishing what you have and shopping your closet. I think secondhand is great because it is, if you're not going to shop your closet or maybe you've outgrown your closet, being able to give these clothes a second and third and fourth life is great. And I've been buying secondhand since I was a college student. I, I remember going to the dollar rack at the Salvation Army store and getting really great clothes that I wore as a student. And my daughter buys does the same thing. She's now a student and she's wearing my jeans from the 80s. So she's shopping, she's shopping my closet. 
I think secondhand is great that way. And if you've, if you've sort of aged out of things like I'm finding is happening more and more, you can put it, you know, up for resale and give it a second life as opposed to having it done, end up in the dump. What we want to avoid is throwing clothes away. Just don't throw your mm. clothes away. If you can have it recut into something else, you know, take your blue jeans and turn them into cutoffs. Do something, but don't throw clothes away, please. That's a really one of the most important things that we talk about in terms of sustainable fashion is not throwing clothes away. But the other really important thing, which is much more subtle, I think, is this idea of not hoarding clothes. So right. not keeping clothes at home and not wearing them. Because if you're doing that, you're, you're restricting the opportunity for someone else to wear that clothing. And this is not about charity it, 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 per se, but it, it's about this idea that when, uh, and we, we've done some really interesting research looking at how people hoard their clothes and why they do that. You cannot have a circular fashion model if everyone is hoarding their clothes. So what we're trying to get, what we're trying to, we, what we need to do in terms of behavior change for consumers is to get them to be thinking about being sensible and planning their purchases about what they want to buy. And, and by the way, I should say, I, I'm, I'm an advocate of fast fashion in many ways, which may seem very perverse being a sustainability lecturer, but I think fast fashion does some really interesting, really interesting cultural things. But if we can get consumers to be thinking about what they're buying, and then when they've bought the product, thinking about how they wear it, how they wash it, how they use it. And when it comes to the end of life with them, don't put it in the back of the wardrobe because you could give that garment to someone else, which means that other person is not going out and buying a new fashion piece. So it seems like a very sort of loose connection, but those connections are there. Don't throw garments away into the bin. That's the worst thing that you can do, but equally don't hoard them. And if we can start moving that, shifting that, that sort of pattern in, in terms of consumer behavior, we can then start to see some changes um, happening across the board. Well, I have to say my daughter is really happy that my, my 1980s 501s that I had tailored and I bought shrink to fit you know, 35 years ago, it saved my money up to buy because they cost so much more than they do today you know, sort of found their way pushed into the back of my closet. And now she looks badass. <laughs> Can we say that on your show? And she, the other day, she said, I love these jeans more than anything else, mama. And then she looked through the photo album of our wedding and saw me wearing the same jeans at our wedding rehearsal. And she was like, this is really cool. But mostly she gets the best compliments of all. And they were free. They didn't cost four or five or $600 on the secondhand market because they're original 501s. So we've talked about things like buying less and buying better. Back in May, the high street fashion brand Zara announced that it was going to end free returns for its online shopping, introducing a £1.95 charge. Do you think that's a helpful move in limiting online shopping waste? And what else can we do as consumers in limiting that? It's certainly helpful in getting the, the owners of Zara even richer than they were before. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Those people are amazing. I think, yeah, sure. Well, does it does it dissuade you from order? No, because it's not an it's not a hefty enough amount. It's like when you forgot to take your bag to the grocery store and then they charge you twenty pence for a bag. You're like, well, it's twenty pence, whatever. I'll get another bag. You know, it's not a huge amount, and and the clothes are so cheap that it's the bill is still tiny. I mean, if you've ordered a hundred clothes and you got to pay ten quid to send it back, whatever. 
and and that's going to be a lot of clothes, a hundred, a hundred, a hundred's worth. No, it's just another way to make money. They're just squeezing people for more money. I think it's a really interesting challenge, isn't it? Because I remember when some brands and retailers unilaterally started charging for plastic carrier bags. And what was really interesting about that move is there's a direct line between those brands charging 5p for a carrier bag before it was law. There's a direct line between what they did and it actually becoming a legal requirement and a mandatory requirement to charge for carrier bags, which has seen a huge reduction in plastic bags uh, being used in the UK. Now, I'm not suggesting for one minute that, you know, organisations are charging for returns with this idea of creating law. But what we do see is there, are, there, there has to be different ways of looking at how we change consumer behaviour. But I think the important thing here is to remember that consumers are only part of this dialogue. This is not about saying, uh, I'm not saying that, you know, consumers have to carry the, the vast majority of the responsibility about their clothing purchases. But it is about looking at where we can um, change behaviour, whether it's with consumers, whether it's with brands, and whether we can use legislation to, to actually drive that change. Because what we need now more than any other time in human history is rapid change and more and more people engaging in this dialogue that we are running out of time to resolve climate change. And we know that the fashion industry has a very significant impact in terms of climate change, as well as lots of other things in terms of water consumption, pollution. And let's not forget about the 300 million workers across the world that are employed by the fashion industry. So we need to have that change happening quickly. So any levers that we can pull to try and drive that change is really important now. And what are some of the practical things that we can do as consumers then to limit the waste accrued by online shopping? Well, I think the really, the really important thing is, to, is, is for us as individuals to be thinking about what it is that we, we want to get from fashion. We need to be thinking about making sensible purchases. And, and what I mean by sensible is, is not you know, sensible clothes, boring clothes, but actually identifying those brands and retailers who are doing the right thing. And if you go on their website and you look at what they're doing, are they talking about using organic cotton or BCI cotton? Are they talking about animal welfare when it comes to things like wool? Are they talking about engaging in things like the Ethical Trade Initiative to protect workers' rights and protect working conditions? If the brand that you're thinking about buying from is not talking about any of those things on their website or in their stores, assume that they are not doing those things. And then you have a choice. You can either write to their chief executive and ask them why they're not doing these things or take your custom somewhere else. When you take your custom somewhere else, think about the things that you're buying when you bought them. One of the things that we know that reduces the life of a garment is washing. And we are doing far more washing your clothes now than we've ever done before. You know, some people are washing their clothes after only wearing them, you know, for two or three hours. And every single time we wash a garment, we're causing it to fade, to shrink, we're causing it to pill, we're reducing its life. So let's think about how often we wash that garment, because also by reducing the washing, we're saving money in terms of water, saving money in terms of electricity, and probably reducing the amount of microfibers that are going down the drain. And then the thing that we've already touched on as well is that when, when that garment has come to the end of its life, when you no longer want that garment... We don't want you to be feeling guilty about not wanting that garment, but do the right thing with it. Either donate it to charity, sell it online, 
I'll give it away to, to friends or relatives. But make sure that that garment does get a second life and push it through a channel that uh, for that second life that is, is, is something that you understand and you know. Lots of the uh, lots of the charities here in the UK will talk about where they send their garments, so you can get a, a feel for what they're doing in terms of responsible use of those garments. So I think those those key aspects for consumers to be thinking about what they're doing is really important. But I also think, irrespective of what you do with your fashion, you need to be lobbying the brands and retailers you're buying from. You need to be lobbying government as well and saying, what are you doing? to try and drive this change as well. We're doing our bit as consumers. How do we get others to do their bit as well? Brilliant. Mark, Dana, thank you both ever so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also back us on Patreon. Just see our social media for details. And if you liked this episode, listen to our other daily with Ruth Michelson on how the West exports waste. The link is in the episode notes or search Wild Wild Waste wherever you get your podcasts. This is Yelena Sofronievich signing out of The Bunker. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Yelena Sofronievich. Producers Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, and theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. 